0: Hello everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I have a very special guest with me, Presna Ranganathan. He is a human rights lawyer, diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, accessibility advisor, documentary filmmaker, and author. And I'm not sure if you are aware of this or not, but October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And on today's episode, Presna talked to us all about disability rights, disclosing your disability, and steps to improving disability inclusion and belonging. The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley physical therapist, and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to The Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, Whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Prasanna, thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Gretchen. I'm so excited for this conversation.
0: I am too. As I was just saying before we pressed record, I think it's such a perfect time because October, as many people may or may not know, is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And when this releases, it's going to be October. And I think that there's a lot of discussion to be had around disability awareness in general, let alone specifically in the employment area. But before we dive into those questions, is it okay if I ask you a question from my interview deck?
1: Oh my gosh. I'm excited. Let's go.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Okay. I'm going to shuffle over here. You know, what's crazy is this is my second deck of questions and each deck has 52 and I'm about halfway through it. Meaning I've had a lot of guests on my episode.
1: Wow. Okay. I'm very intrigued to find out what question will be coming my way.
0: (laughs) Yes. Okay. Your question is which actor or actress would you want to play in a movie of your life?
1: Oh my gosh. This is such a great question. (laughs) I have always struggled to have an answer to this question growing up because I didn't see anyone who looked like me who was racialized or disabled or queer or just like had that sort of sense. I mean, so listen, this is a dream pie in the sky, like casting choice. And I by no means think I look like him at all. In fact, he's aspirational in terms of fashion goals and everything, but I would absolutely love Dev Patel to play me in a movie. Oh, that's a really great choice. Yes. I'm just like, I I have no qualms about thinking I look remotely like Dev Patel. He's obviously gorgeous and like an incredible accomplished actor.
0: But if I can choose anyone, I'm choosing Dev Patel. Why not? Shoot for the stars. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. So what a lot of people probably don't know unless they were at Chronicon is that you and I actually met at Chronicon. You were the moderator for the panel that I was on, where we were talking all about the audacity to thrive. And one thing that I picked up on you right from the beginning was just your energy and your enthusiasm and your love for life, even with tons of stuff that's going on in the world. And it's just so infectious, which is really nice to be around. So I'm excited for my listeners to get to hear and feel that from you as well.
1: Oh my gosh, that's so lovely. Thank you. I feel like my parents gave me a name which required me to establish a branding strategy that was like in line with the name. So my name Prasanna means supreme happiness or bliss. And so every time I'm kind of not feeling my best self, I'm like, man, I got to live up to this name. So I really appreciate that that came out, but I say joy is my essence and I I try to shine that as much as I possibly can.
0: I love that so much. Can you share a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are now. So you're a human rights lawyer. You have like so many different accolades, diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, accessibility advisor, documentary filmmaker, author, all these things. Can you share a bit about who you are and how you got to this place?
1: I love that question. So for me, I always say that I was very curious about the stories of other people. And I also was like very passionate about telling stories. And so, for me, a lot of my childhood growing up, as I referenced earlier, I didn't see myself reflected in movies or in television, which I love movies and television. So, I felt sort of isolated and disconnected from the stories that people were telling. And throughout my own career and life, I often was the first person in a particular place or space. So the first racialized queer disabled person in this organization or on this team. And what did it mean to bring the fullness of who I am to what I do? And so I would say my story has always been a curiosity about the stories of others a real interest in telling stories so that people who didn't have access to certain opportunities or places or spaces could see themselves reflected or could see the possibility that they could be a part of that space. So that's always been my dream and goal. And I've worked now, like you said, in a number of sectors as a human rights lawyer, as a DEI practitioner, as a producer, as a storyteller or author, but fundamentally motivated by the question of who is in this space? Who is not in this space? What are the barriers that are keeping people out? And what can I do with my skills and my experience and my privilege to unlock opportunities for people and remove those barriers? So that's been what's animated my life. And whether I've been doing any of those things you named earlier, it's always been with that curiosity in mind.
0: I love that. And I think it's so powerful because in the disability space, there's not a whole lot of inclusion and belonging there, especially when we look at our systems, but even just a very quick example. So to prepare for this podcast episode, I was doing some research and I believe what I put in Google was just Disability Employment Awareness Month. And the first question, you know how Google will give you questions like that other people have typed in or what exists for articles and whatnot. the first suggested question was, what are the rights of the disabled? And for some reason, just seeing that, I was like, whoa, how unfair is that question in the sense that you would never see the question of what are the rights of an able-bodied person? Mm -hmm. And so I actually then Googled what are the rights of an able-bodied person? And nothing came up. So just the fact that what are the rights of the disabled exists, it shows the separation so clearly that there isn't that inclusion. There isn't that equality between someone who's able-bodied versus disabled. But I guess I'm curious, especially from your perspective, what are our disability rights? What should we know about this? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. So I always talk about disabled and non-disabled. Those are the terms that I, I leverage generally. And when I think about the question about the rights of people with disabilities, I actually often think that the human rights discourse requires that we have rights for groups that are particularly underrepresented or marginalized. So we have the rights for women. We have the International Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. We have the rights around anti-discrimination and anti-racism. We talk about like the right to equality, the right to equal access. The right to be free from discrimination in all of these areas. And so I found that in addition to having just these general rights, which are rights for everybody, we've often discovered that seemingly neutral laws or policies have disproportionate impact on people from certain underrepresented groups. So even if you have these laws which say, like, everyone should be treated fairly, when you look at statistics and employment, for example, women, people from racialized communities, people with disabilities are not employed at the levels of our existence in the population. So for example, people with disabilities account for, some estimate, anywhere between 25 to 30% of the US population. In Canada, similarly, worldwide, I think the ILO estimates like 15 to 20% of the global population are people with disabilities. But then when you look at like your workplace or your organization, it's not 15 to 30% of people with disabilities that are in the organization. Oftentimes it's less than 2%, depending on industry. And so the rights of people with disabilities exist because it's like, even though seemingly policies are neutral, people have biases that are in their mind that are keeping them from hiring people with disabilities, People don't have policies to accommodate people with disabilities in the workplace so they can fully do their jobs. And so for me, I think these rights instruments are important because we still have such a long way to go to create an equal playing field and an inclusive workplace. And while I'm upset that like those policies and those laws haven't led to tangible change, they're almost kind of the foundation on which we build our programs to create more inclusive organizations.
0: Absolutely. And I think the answer on Google because I just clicked the downward button just to see like, what does this say? And it was super basic. And it was just people who are disabled deserve basically anything that someone who's non-disabled does. And it just, it was crazy to me because it's like, well, yeah, I thought that was a no brainer, (laughs) like, but it's not, you know, this needs to be typed out and, and put in these documents so that we can at least in some way, shape or form, even if it's just on paper, be on the same side and protect those who don't have the rights that should be there all the time, yeah. I
1: often think also when we think about people with disabilities, we often think of the community as a small subset. The stories that media have depicted about us depict us in a certain way. like it's only people that have visible disabilities, whereas disabilities can be both visible and invisible. Disabilities can actually impact up to seventy five percent of our the population. Because a disability can be permanent, it can be temporary, it can have an impact on your ability to navigate the world and like engage in major life activities. But I think the key thing about disability is it's the one identity category that has the potential to touch everybody at a certain point in their life. And I think what people are so unaware of when they view people with disabilities, like myself, I'm blind. Uh, When they view me and others who are members of the disability community as like other, oh, like that's not my experience, you're the other, or they're not really realizing the ways in which that keeps us out, that marginalizes us further. And so when I say inclusion, I always say include people with disabilities in the design of your programming. Include us in how you want your organization to be created. Because if you do that, then you're building inclusively at the outset. You're making sure that your processes and systems are accessible. If you own a physical business, you're making sure that that's accessible and inclusive to people with disabilities. And I think like by including us, we're not then othered or marginalized. We're a core part of the community that's designing what serves the community.
0: Yes, and what a better way to serve the community when you are getting that input from everyone, not just certain people,
1: Exactly. and I think like you bring bring up such a great point because when we often think about, people with disabilities, the focus tends to be, when we talk about accessibility, it's like, how do we make sure that the physical space we're including people with disabilities in is accessible? So we'll say, is there a ramp? Is there an accessible restroom or accessible washroom? Is there an elevator in the space if you need to navigate between floors? But actually there's four key barriers to accessibility. There's those physical ones, but there's also information and communication barriers. So how do we communicate with one another? Are there captions on the videos? Are there alt text on images? The third one is systemic barriers. Are your transportation schedules aligned with like getting to work on time? Are there accommodations policies in your workplace so that it provides people with disabilities a tool to do their jobs? And then the final barrier is actually ableism. So it's what are the The slights or assumptions or cruelty or exclusion that people face that keep them out or deny them opportunities. So, for us to meaningfully include people with disabilities, we actually need to address all four barriers physical, information communication, systemic, and then attitudinal.
0: I've never thought of ableism as one of those barriers, but it absolutely is. I love viewing it in that way. Wow, that's really powerful.
1: Expand our minds when it comes to, or expand our view when it comes to how we address accessibility and how we address disability inclusion, unless we talk about all four of those areas, because you could create an organization that has physically accessible spaces, it does inclusive uh, communication, that has an accommodations policy. But if you have someone who's like, I will not hire a person with a disability because I have a bias that they're less capable of doing the job, that they face all these barriers, uh, I don't want to deal with that, then that's an an ableist attitude. You're saying that people with disabilities are less capable, less intelligent, less viable at doing these jobs, and that's a barrier for us getting opportunities. So unless we address it as a core part of it, we're not going to make a real difference.
0: Absolutely, and especially as you touched on a little bit earlier, when those disabilities are invisible versus visible. You know, it's so yeah. obvious when you have a disability if you need to use a rollator or a walk or a walking stick, anything like that, but if your symptoms are invisible, it can make it even trickier to disclose. I guess one question I have for you is, how and when should you disclose your disability, whether it's invisible or not, in many different situations to your friends and family, but also in the workplace?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I always, because my vision loss was progressive. Like year over year, it gets worse. I'm now at the stage where I'm blind. And for me, it's been an interesting situation. I now use a cane navigating everywhere. So like you said, that's a visible disability for people. But when I was earlier on in the journey and I did it, one of the questions that I often faced with employers was when do I ask for accommodations in the hiring process, like even in the job interview process? When do I disclose to get accommodations in the job? Because I had a few experiences where the interviews were going amazingly. We had great conversations. We talked about what I would work on once I started. Like, it was a matter of, here's a start date that we're thinking about, not we're still assessing your skills. And then I said, that's so great. I want to self identify as someone who has vision loss. Here are some of the accommodations I'll need, like a screen reader, a larger monitor. It was like fairly standard things that most offices could leverage pretty quickly. And I just never heard back from the recruiter after that. Wow. Company silence. And so, I'm someone who's a human rights lawyer who was at that stage interviewing for a human rights lawyer position uh, at a law firm with other lawyers who are well aware that you cannot discriminate against someone on the basis of disability for hiring them or not. And when I said, I'm a person with a disability, here are the accommodations I need, and those lawyers stopped talking to me. If I, with all of the privilege I had and the knowledge of the system I had faced that, then what do people across different sectors and industries, what are they facing on a regular basis? And that was an example where it was like pretty overt because the conversation stopped right after I identified. It's also been in places where people have said ableist remarks to me in interviews. So I've like known that right away. But what happens in the context of you self-identify and then they don't hire you? But then if you don't self-identify, are you erasing a part of your identity to be a part of that organization? So for me, it's been a balance. I've now come to the stage of my career where I have the privilege, where I can self-identify pretty quickly. And now, especially because we're doing interviews over Zoom, I wouldn't use a cane to navigate to the interview. So some of that is also covered, but I will now self-identify very early on and request the accommodations I need based on the format of the interview because I want to know that the workplace I'm thinking of joining is an inclusive workplace. And if they give me signals early on, I will self-select out because I do not need to be in an environment that's unsafe. But I know that's the privilege I have of having built a career over the last 17 years that I can make those choices. But I know a lot of people can't. So my advice is always self-identify at the point where you need accommodations because you need to share, in Canada at least, you need to share what your functional limitations are that stem from your disability and what accommodations you'll need to get that work done. So you don't need to tell people about the nature of your disability but you can say i have difficulty seeing things that are projected at a distance so if this interview requires me reading something that's on a powerpoint on a screen far away i might need the printed text close to me in larger font so that's something you would say in the interview but if the interview is something where you you're, there aren't limitations associated with your disability that arise then i think you should have the agency to choose when you self identify so i always tell people You will know best based on the employer and it'll change every single time. You might have an employer where they signal right away that they're an inclusive workplace. And so you want to make sure that's the case. In other cases, you might want to wait until after you've signed an offer to have conversations around accommodation. It's so difficult because it just, you're constantly navigating that tightrope of what does it mean to be who I am in a world that's not always inclusive.
0: Right, especially when you do want to, accept that part of you and it's not something that you're trying to hide what about for people who in the workplace you had a job for even let's say 20 years the same job and then you were diagnosed with something that causes some form of limitations I mean how would your answer kind of stay the same like it's up to you when to disclose that is there Uh, a right and wrong way how to navigate that
1: I mean the challenge with accessibility and accommodations is like the laws vary based on what they require. Some people just require you to share very basic information. And when I say limitations, like I I think this is also really vital. When I say I have a disability, there's no flaw or defect in me, right? Like there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to be fixed or cured. I always say my disability arises in my interaction with the world around me, which is designed for people who see. So the fact that I'm blind, there's not something wrong with me internally that needs to be corrected. I live in a world that was designed for people who have vision or who have sight. So my disability arises in that interaction. So then the responsibility shouldn't be on me. The responsibility should be on the enabling environment around me to create accommodations so that I can meaningfully engage. So that's, that's the premise I want to start from. So in that context, then, if you're in a role for a long period of time... How do you get the accommodations you need in the workplace? In that case, they may already know that your work is amazing. You've been there as a long-term employee. You've added value to the organization. And so you might have built relationships of trust with the people in your team to like self-identify in terms of what accommodations you need. But that also could vary because you may have crushed it at work because you were working in a different context and now you have different needs and you may have had signals from your colleagues or staff that they wouldn't be supportive. So I think it is very much based on the organization. But I would say the one thing when it comes to self-identification is it's always an individual choice and each organization has different policies. So some might require you to provide medical documentation before they'll even engage in the conversation. And some might just be like, here's what we can provide internally. If we need to leverage our benefits provider or someone else, then we'll need the medical documentation. My advice is always organizations need to move away from people with disabilities having to prove what our disability is and what what barriers we face and trust us. I navigate a world that's inaccessible. You questioning My lived experience just is one of those ableist attitudes that we talked about earlier. So my hope is that as we move to the future, we move away from medical documentation as the basis for creating an inclusive workplace.
0: Yeah, I think that's a a great idea. Are there any laws around when those accommodations need to be implemented? So let's say you do self-identify, you do say, hey, these are the accommodations I need. Is there any laws around, okay, they need to do that within a week or four weeks or a certain amount of time? Yeah. So I'm not practicing
1: as a lawyer in the States, so I can't speak specifically to American laws, but there are protections in both Canada and the U.S. that speak specifically to the delay around the provision of accommodations. So I would definitely like, if you're thinking your workplace has taken too long, definitely like look those up consult a lawyer, determine what your rights are in the particular country or region you live in. I will say in my personal experience, I once worked for a government department, which you would think would have like all this agency and like know all the rights. It took seven months for me to get my accommodations. And while I was waiting for the accommodations to get in, my probation period didn't start for the role. I still worked in the job and like tried to navigate the limitations that existed in the environment because of my disability but the probation period couldn't start till all my accommodations were in place. So I ended up as a person with a disability, having double the probationary period that anyone, any non-disabled employee would have had just because the organization failed to get accommodations in place fast enough.
0: Wow, that's crazy. And again, you know, the places that you've worked, you would assume would be on top of it, like on their A-game with getting these things done.
1: Which is why it's so frustrating when I'm like, my experience is working within an industry and a profession that is very aware of disability rights, that knows what its obligations are and still continues to fail people with disabilities on a repeated basis. So I can't even imagine what it's like in sectors where they don't necessarily have all the information at um, their disposal.
0: Right. And one thing that you touched on in the very beginning of how you got to where you are now is that you love storytelling and stories and one story that we tell ourselves all the time and i think it really stems from our parents our teachers even books and tv and film everything is that if we work hard enough we'll reach our goals we'll we'll achieve our dreams we'll be successful if we work hard enough I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that story and if it's a good or bad story and if it's bad, what damage can that do just having that thought?
1: Yeah, that's a story that I was told a lot growing up. And I think it's my parents are both, they immigrated to Canada from India. And so for them, a lot of their journey was they came here, all of their family was in India. They started really from nothing and then built their way up. And so the story that, of their success was hard work will get you here. And that was the thing they kept telling me, you have to work hard, you have to work hard, you have to work hard. Then it gradually shifted to, you have to work twice as hard or three times as hard to get as far as your colleagues who are non-disabled or not racialized or who are straight. Like their experiences in the world with their forms of privilege are different. So you'll have to work exponentially harder. And the challenge is, is, it's a message where We're told the narrative that all of our success is within our control. And so for me, the challenge is as as an adult, I know that's a false narrative. I'm like, I can control elements of my experience and I can put in the inputs, which based on films and television and books have told me will reach to those desired outcomes of success, whatever, however you define success. But I know that from my lived experience, not getting the jobs I was qualified for, not having opportunities to speak at events or present at events that I knew I had the expertise or knowledge to share. I know that that wasn't because I didn't work hard enough. We talk about tropes in storytelling. And so tropes are often a shortcut or a narrative device to get us from point A to point B. They don't let us to explore the complexities of the human experience. They just say, if you work hard enough, you'll get success. Another big one that comes up for people with disabilities are struggle stories. So the only way we're portrayed in film and books are we start at the beginning of the journey as someone who's in abject poverty, who has faced all this harm, we're about to lose everything. And then by the end of the story, we've either like created an invention or we like launched litigation and suddenly we're successful and we're like regarded and well respected but that's always our journey from struggle to success and I'm like but think about all the ways and variations in which we exist in society just as a non-disabled person would sometimes their movies can focus on love sometimes they can focus on an adventure or like a travel thing or they can focus on an action film we don't get those stories Our stories are often very limited to if we're not the sidekick or the best friend of the main character that has no personality, we're the person who's gone through struggle to get to success. So the story of if you work hard enough, you'll get success always reminds me of also for people with disabilities, that's paired on to the we start in poverty and we end in success. Like that's the only story that's told about us. And that's often such a false story when you also see how many people with disabilities are unemployed or underemployed. Like it doesn't tell the full richness of our stories and makes us really fit a certain narrow viewpoint.
0: Yeah, and I I feel like either way you look at it, whether it's that way, which is so much more is out of my control than what that statement actually implies. Or even if you want to believe that statement and then realize, oh, you know, now that I'm adults and i realize that with this disability, that's just not true. It can almost make you feel like you're up against the odds. So how do we flip that story? Or maybe it's not even that story at all, but like, what can we tell ourselves, especially if you have a disability that can allow you to feel like you are in a bit more control. You can take a stance. And of course we have systems and biases and ableism out there, but how can we use that to motivate us and inspire us to keep going versus just, all right, I just give up.
1: Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think that journey is a daily journey. I think I'm still on it. If I'm being quite honest, I think a lot of what we're told is we have this, I I describe it as the Legally Blonde musical montage where she studies for the LSAT while there's like a really peppy pop music score playing in the background. And at the end of it, she gets into Harvard. And I'm like, I wish as much as I love movies, I wish life was a musical montage to the future of our dreams. But sometimes it's a daily reckoning with what are not internal flaws in me, but what are the barriers I face because of my disability existing in a world that wasn't designed for me? And how am I going to navigate those today so that I can get closer to my dreams? And like then, how do my dreams adapt based on my knowledge of the world around me and my understanding of the ways in which barriers manifest? Because as much as it is, I'm holding steadfast to my dreams and nothing's going to get in my way, it's also balancing that with the realization of these barriers are systemic, they're generational. I may not always be in a position to be the individual that breaks through them in this instance. So how do I, I reckon with that Like complexity of these barriers exist and they may not always be insurmountable, uh, at least for me on a particular day. So I always say the story is a daily one as opposed to narratively, we're moving closer to that.
0: I like that. I feel like it makes it feel more doable if you think of it as daily actions versus just this big leap from one point to another.
1: Totally. And when you, like you talked about storytelling and like the stories we tell ourselves, it's like oftentimes the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves are also rooted in biases, right? Like a bias doesn't necessarily need to be a story someone has heard about people with disabilities, and as a result, they take an action. It also can be stories that society has told us about what we can and cannot do. And then we internalize those stories and create our own world in which we say, well, only these opportunities are for me and those ones aren't. And so in some cases, there might be realistic barriers we face based on the world we're navigating, but sometimes it also might just be the story we've internally told ourselves about ourselves. And that's yeah. so devastating as well.
0: It really is. How do you, you know, and this could be a whole nother conversation, but those stories can really make or break us, especially if they're ones that really put you down. Mm. How would you even suggest that someone start to work on understanding what their own personal stories are, whether, regardless of where those stories came from? Yeah. But is that something that we should do? And how do you even go about it?
1: One of my favorite books, which I've been referencing a lot lately, but it's called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And one of the chapters is called The Inner Roommate. And I always think that one of our biggest jobs as human beings is determining the difference between the inner roommate versus our inner voice. The inner critic or the inner roommate would be like, who are you to think you can wear that shirt? Who are you to think at your age you can wear a shirt with that many colors on it? And then the inner voice, meanwhile, is telling you, use your fashion to express the joy that you hold within. And so a lot of our life is determining what voice we listen to on the inside. Is it the one that's telling us That we're less than, that we don't deserve the fullness of our dreams, or is it the one telling us you have everything you need to move to the direction you want to go, or here are the questions you need asked, here are the things that you might need support on, here's how you should probably reach out. So it's like determining... Who's the person that's speaking to you internally, that's moving you forward in the direction of your dreams, and that's deeply invested in your joy? And what's the voice inside that's telling you you're not enough, you're never going to be enough. Who are you to think that you are enough? I think that's one of the first things I think that if we're going to eliminate the person or eliminate the biases we hold about ourselves, the first thing is to determine what voice we're going to listen to. And the inner critic doesn't just exist as a villain that you've created. The inner critic exists because of the media you've consumed as well, right? Like if the stories you've only ever heard about people with disabilities are that we struggle, that we face barriers, that we have a hard life, then that's something you internalize about your own experience as well. and And society gives us so many examples, statistically, in all fields about the barriers that we face. But how do we live within that reality? while allowing it to also not limit the possibilities we hold for ourselves.
0: Wow, I love that so much. I love that inner roommate. It actually reminds me of a story a few, actually more than a few years ago, maybe like, I don't know, five to seven years ago my sister and I went to a Tony Robbins event. I think it was geared towards really listening to your own self, what you want, what you're looking for in life. And anyways, we came away from that with one of the memories being to differentiate kind of like you were just saying our our inner voice versus the part of us that doesn't want us to succeed in limiting beliefs. And we didn't hear it in the way that you just said it. So what we ended up doing was, yeah, we should give that person a name. And so anytime we had a negative thought, I believe my sister's limiting belief voice was Blanche. And so she would always say, Oh, that that's not me thinking that that's just Blanche telling me that. And I remember thinking it was such a cool way to differentiate it. Cause if you think of them as people, like as the inner roommate or as Blanche, you can think, well, I don't have to listen to Blanche. She's a different person. You know, she's a different thought or I don't have to listen to my roommate. And so, yeah, we came, I think mine was Betty. I don't know where we got those names from. I love
1: it. I mean, cause it is interesting. It's like the inner critic or the inner roommates, often the internal manifestation of systemic biases or societal like barriers that we take internally. We see it all around us or we experience it all around us. So our inner voice then tells us those falsehoods about ourselves. It takes all the external data, weaponizes the external data, and then tells us that we cannot live in the fullness of our dreams. And the dangerous thing about it is like, sometimes it's so hard to identify that that's what's happening because some of it is rooted in the things we see happening in society. So it's also like, oh, yeah, like, there's some truth to this when it's like, that might be true in society, but it's not something that should be used to harm the way you see yourself.
0: Right, right. So I think my final question is an important one as well. And it's more about How can someone with a disability or multiple disabilities go through all of this, everything that we've been talking about, yet still feel included and like they belong, especially when systems, whether that be workplace or anything, aren't really set up to support them? Are there things that we can do or steps that we can take to be included and feel that belonging?
1: Oh, this is a big question. I think... So I often when we have conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging, I think diversity is often viewed as the starting point, like the idea that we have this world that's like perfect and fair and neutral. And like I think critics of diversity are like, oh, we have this world that's perfect and fair and neutral. And diversity is about bringing people into this fair world when really like when we think about it people across all backgrounds and experiences are facing barriers. So indigenous, Black, and racialized communities are facing barriers. Women and other gender diverse communities are facing barriers. People from the LGBTQ2 plus community, people with disabilities. Like it's not true that we live in a fair and neutral world. So I think I always, when I start the conversation, start from a place of inclusion. I say like, if people are unsure of how to do this work, think about it Through a lens of inclusion. If the world includes all of us and you are in a workplace or you're on a team which looks the same or has the same experience, then tell yourself, if the world includes all of us and our team doesn't, what has our team done wrong to create barriers to like not include people? Because like, if we exist everywhere, why don't we exist on your team? That's a failure of your team or your organization to create an inclusive space. So for people with disabilities, when it comes to like fostering a sense of inclusion and belonging, sometimes our existence is an act of resistance, but it shouldn't have to be. Dr. Akila Kade has said that. And I all think about that a lot. It's like, yeah, our existence by our very nature reminds people of our presence in society and the work that they need to do to make sure that we're meaningfully included no longer about the work we need to do to foster inclusion and belonging. We need to make sure that everybody across all dimensions of diversity with different forms of privilege take the actions that they take to accommodate, include, accommodate and meaningfully include people with disabilities in all parts of society. So that's my thought around it. I mean, I describe belonging as a fundamental human need where an individual feels included, valued and heard. And we all as human beings want to experience that fundamental human need. So belonging is the thread that connects all of us across cultures and languages, traditions and backgrounds. And so my hope is that as people with disabilities navigate this conversation around inclusion and belonging, that people connect to that innate need for belonging and realize that if people with disabilities are not able to experience that as well. What can we do from an empathetic heart space to create opportunities so that they can? Um, that's my hope for this work.
0: Um, yeah, absolutely. And especially I think what I'm taking away from that too is that it's not up to the person with a disability. It's up to the people around them, the workplace, the friends family, ah. to understand you know, what their biases are ah. and or how they can make them feel belonged and included versus being the cause.
1: Totally. And if we talked about the definition of disability, like the social model definition, it's the disability arises in our interaction with the world around us, right? It's not a flaw or defect internal to us. My disability as someone who's blind arises in my interaction with the world around me, which is designed for people who see. So then it's the responsibility of the world around me to create more inclusion and belonging by dismantling systems, by ensuring there's more accessibility, by ensuring there are accommodations in place. That goes from everything from cross lights with audio description, describe video for film and television. It involves alt text for images. Those are all the things that need to happen to foster more inclusion and belonging. So people often think accessibility is just like getting in the door. Accessibility is larger than just unlocking and opening the door. Accessibility is the starting point of the conversation. The conversation doesn't just end when we're in the space. The conversation starts when we're in the space. And that's why I always say human rights legislation, accessibility legislation is the foundation on which we build the life of our dreams. It's not the goal that we're reaching for. The
0: foundation, not the goal. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. This has been such an empowering conversation. I know everyone's just going to repeat it (laughs) and use it to motivate themselves. But thank you so much for your insights, your expertise, your thoughts. It's been so refreshing being able to look at things from multiple sides, especially when it comes to things that people with disabilities are living with and going through on a day-to-day basis. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh my
1: gosh, thank you for having me. I could talk for hours with you. You've made this such a great and inclusive experience. I really, really appreciate it. Of course.
0: Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles.